0: power that took sin and our guilt to a cross, who died in our place, the power that went to a tomb and walked out of that tomb three days later, a power that is over our greatest fear, a power that is over our greatest need, the need of forgiveness, that need of life forever. So, Father, we celebrate Jesus today. We celebrate that power. And we are united as one as we stand before you, lifting up our songs of praise to our Savior. Father, we pray that the worship that we have offered to you today this would be a sweet sound to your ear, that you would have heard our, the praises of your people as they rise before your throne today. God, now as we come to the pages of Scripture, as we come to this moment in history that we'll read about today, we ask you to speak to us. That you'll take these ancient words and apply them to our world today, apply them to our lives today. God, would you move in our heads and in our hearts, move to our hands and feet. And God, as always, I pray, teach us how to love better. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. You can be seated. Great to see you this morning on this holiday weekend. Glad we get to spend this time together. Thanks for being here in the room with us. Those of you watching at home, tuned in uh, via the internet, we're glad that you're making this a part of your weekend as well. A couple quick things by way of announcement I need you to know about. First is next weekend is a really big weekend around here at Faith Christian. You don't want to miss it. Uh, it's our fall kickoff weekend. We kind of uh, kind of build our church calendar around a school calendar. So this is kind of when we start. So a brand new sermon series called Say Yes begins next Sunday morning. And I don't want you to miss any of those messages messages, so hope you'll be here all fall long as we work through that series called Say Yes, uh, but some very special things happening downstairs in our uh, Faith Kids Ministry next Sunday morning, so if you've got a kid... Um nursery age up through fifth grade some wonderful fun things happening uh, during our faith kids during a 10 o'clock hour next sunday morning so if you've got a kid in your life be sure they are here and checked in and participating downstairs because uh, they're not going to want to miss all the fun stuff that's going on and if you've got a middle school or high school student in your life a sixth grader through 12th grader uh, next sunday evening our um, middle school or our faith students group uh, youth group begins on sunday nights that's a sunday night activity it begins at 6 30 each sunday evening all the way through the tw- almost to the the end of the school year, so if you've got a sixth, sixth grader or up, uh, be sure they're here Sunday evenings beginning next Sunday night at 6.30 for our faith student time. Uh, you don't want to miss that. Also, uh, those of you ladies uh, who, are particip- who participate in our Tuesday morning ladies Bible study, or those of you ladies who don't yet participate in that Bible study but would like to, uh, that Bible study will begin a week from this Tuesday. Again, after next Sunday as we kick everything off, uh, Tuesday morning ladies Bible study, that's at 9.30 on Tuesday mornings downstairs uh, here in the building, and so you ladies, uh, what a great group of ladies. That, that meet uh, once a week and they share uh, life with each other. Uh, they study together and oftentimes they share food with me. So that's a good thing. Uh, it's my favorite day of the week. So, uh, ladies, th- thanks for be- for that. And uh, be sure that you're here beginning next Tuesday. Uh, one more thing by way of announcement, Kara did ask me to mention. Uh, we are still in need of some volunteers to fill out our uh, Faith Kids. Um, Programming uh, for the month of September. So if you could help out uh, downstairs on Sunday mornings and our, with our faith kids, please see her or uh, her husband Noah uh, before you leave today. She'd love to talk to you about how you can get plugged in uh, beginning uh, next week. Uh, she needs you down there. Uh, we're in a series of lessons over the last, well, this summer, we're wrapping up today. Uh, we're called Vintage. What we've been doing in this Vintage series is looking at some stories and some characters from the Old Testament and finding some life lessons, some things that apply to our life today. In the last several weeks, we've been in, a, in a, a section of Scripture we call the period of the Judges, a section of history about 300 years long we call the Judges, where Judges ruled God's people. And some of these stories, I'll be honest with you, are a little crazy, so it's been fun for me to tell you a crazy story as we get going. So here's the final crazy story as we get to that. You may have heard this story uh, because this story gained some traction, regained some traction about a year ago when our great, uh, just treasure of an actress named Angela Lansbury passed away. And some of you will remember this story that happened um, back in the 60s, apparently, late 60s. Um, her daughter was 16 at the time, fell under the, uh, the spell, if you will, of this Hollywood deadbeat. And this guy was kind of always around, and he was getting Angela Lansbury's daughter to start making some bad decisions. She started using drugs, uh, first started with marijuana, went on to heroin, started really spiraling out of control. She's still in high school at this point. Uh, This Hollywood deadbeat convinces Angela Lansbury's daughter to begin stealing money from the family, stealing food from the family. And Angela Lansbury, her husband, not knowing what to do, decide, we're just going to move. And so they picked up their careers and their lives and they left Hollywood and moved to Ireland in order to get their daughter away from this Hollywood deadbeat. By the way, his name was Charles Manson, the serial killer. Yeah, that one, the cult leader. Yeah, crazy story, right? Well, the Bible's full of crazy stories. And some of them um, are a little more unbelievable than others. And today we're gonna come to one that happens at the very end of the book of Judges. We're gonna talk about this guy named Samuel now the idea that's going on i mentioned this a couple of weeks ago we kind of have to have this context for what we're going to talk about today this 300 year period of history of jewish history old testament history this 300 year period where there were the judges the idea was god says to his people i am going to be your king I am your leader I am your ruler I am your king and so what God does as uh, as the king of the people God appoints this series of judges to lead the people sometimes to defend the people sometimes to um, help settle disputes among the people but he appoints these leaders these men and women who were these judges over the source of 300 years the very last phrase of the book of Judges in the Old Testament is this I share this with you week one because this is so important we know this before we talk about Samuel today. The last phrase, the last verse of Judges says this. In those days, Israel had no king. Remember, this was God's plan. God said, I'm gonna be your king. These judges will take care of you. You would think it would work because it's God's plan, but it doesn't work because, well, people. That's why it doesn't work. In those days, Israel had no king. All the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes, that's how the book of Judges ends, and we move from there into a new period of Old Testament history, Jewish history at that point. So today we talk about this guy named Samuel. Samuel is considered to be the last of the judges. Samuel was the judge in Judges 21 and 25 in those days. That's when Samuel was the judge. Samuel is also considered, and we kind of move to the next section of, of Jewish history, of Old Testament history. Samuel is also considered to be one of the first prophets of God. Samuel leads Israel in this time of significant change and structure He's the leader As they move from the period of judges into the period of kings in those days Israel had no king Well, they're about to have a king today. We're going to learn how and why Samuel's story I think is one of the best stories of the Old Testament And there are a ton of things we could talk about I mean there's two books of the Bible First and second Samuel that we could read Samuel's story A lot of great things happen in his life But today I want to focus on one detail of Samuel's life In many ways it is the thing that sets I think sets Samuel apart Certainly from everyone else around him But often it's what sets him apart from me as well The thing I want to focus on today when it comes to Samuel is that Samuel knew what it meant to let God be king. In those days, Israel had no king, and all the people did whatever was right in their own eyes. Samuel knew what it meant to let God be king. Samuel was the type of person who knew what it was like and who regularly and totally surrendered and submitted himself to God as king. So let me just go ahead and give you my big thought for today Here's what I came to say today Everything we're going to talk about a bunch of other stuff But it all boils down to this one thought Here's the thing I need you to take home with you today It's this Only God is a worthy king Will you say that out loud with me? I want to make sure you you've got this locked in before we go on Just say it out loud with me Only God is a worthy king That's what I came here to say today Only God is a worthy king Nothing else is a worthy king. No one else is a worthy king. No other thing, no other person, no other leader, no other personality, no other pursuit, no other hobby is worthy, is a king worthy to rule your life. And God is a worthy king. My goal today is very simple. Laying my cards on the table before we go. Putting the cookies on the bottom shelf, if you will. I want every person in this room, every person watching this broadcast online today, I want every single one of you to submit to God as your king. To tell God, I surrender to you. I submit to you as my king. That's what I want to accomplish today. Whether it's the first time you've ever done that, or the thousandth time you've done that, I want you to do it again today. Let's read this part of Samuel's story. This is 1 Samuel chapter 8, beginning of verse 1. Here's the story we're going we're gonna to focus on today. As Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons to be judges over Israel. Now remember, Samuel's the, kind of the last judge, so he appoints these two, two boys, Joel, Joel and uh, Abijah, his oldest sons, held court in Beersheba. But they were not like their father, Samuel was a great judge, great leader. They were not like their father, for they were greedy for money. They accepted bribes and perverted justice. Finally, all the elders, the other leaders of Israel, met in Ramah to discuss this matter with Samuel. Look, they told him, you are now old. Thanks. And your sons are not like you. Give us a king to judge us like all the other nations have. Now, Pause for just a minute. In those days, Israel had no king. And all the people did whatever they was right in their own eyes. Remember that? Okay. They're saying to the judge, remember God's, God's idea. I'll be your king. Here's the judges to lead you. They're saying to the judge, give us a, a king. We want a king. Everybody else has got a king. We want a king. Verse 6. Samuel was displeased with their request and went to the Lord for guidance. Do everything they say to you, the Lord replied. For they are rejecting me. This is God saying, they are rejecting me, not you. They don't want me to be their king any longer. Ever since I brought them from Egypt, they have continually abandoned me and followed other gods, and now they are giving you the same treatment. Do as they ask, but solemnly warn them about the way a king will reign over them. Notice the scene here God has said, I will be your king. You're not to have a king because I'm gonna be the king. But the people say, We want a king. Everybody else around us look at all the others. They got kings. Why don't we have a king? We want a king. Come on, God, let us have a king. They're whining. That's what they're doing here. And they do what people do. They reject God's kingship. We don't want the, we don't, God, we don't want you to be the king. We want a king. We don't want you as a king. We want a different king. They do what people do. They reject God's kingship. Samuel does what Samuel does. He goes to God for advice. God, what do I do in this situation? And God does then what God does now. God accepts their rejection. You need to understand that. God will accept our rejection. I wish there was a nicer way to say that. But God will not force himself upon you any more than he would force himself upon the people of Israel. God will not demand that from you. And he will accept. If you choose to reject him, he will accept your rejection. So he accepts our rejection, but not without a warning. So he says to Samuel, tell the people if they want a king, tell them what's going to happen if they go through this with plan. Verse 10. So Samuel passed on the Lord's warning to the people who were asking him for a king. This is how a king will reign over you, Samuel said. The king will draft your sons and assign them to his chariots and his charioteers, making them run before his chariots. Some will be generals and captains in his army. Some will be forced to plow his fields and harvest his crops, and some will make his weapons and chariot equipment. The king will take your daughters from you and force them to cook and bake and make perfume for him. He will take away the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to his own officials." He will take a tenth of your grain and your grape harvest and distribute among his officers and attendants. He will take your male and female slaves and and demand the finest of your cattle and donkeys for his own use. He will demand a tenth of your flocks and you will be his slaves. When the day comes, you will beg for relief from this king that you are demanding, but then the Lord will not help you. But the people refused to listen to Samuel's warning. Even so... We still want a king, they said. We want to be like all the nations around us. Our king will judge us and lead us into battle. So Samuel repeated to the Lord what the people had said. And the Lord replied, Do as they say and give them a king. Then Samuel agreed and sent the people home. I get the picture. Samuel receives the warning from God, passes it on to the people. Here's what's going to happen. This king that you think you want, it's not going to be what you think it's going to be. Be careful what you ask for. This king is going to take from you. He's going to take your sons from you. He's going to take your daughters from you. He's going to take your crops from you. He's going to take your livestock from you. He's going to take your resources from you, and he's going to use them for himself. But the people say, we don't care. We just want a king. Why? Because all the nations around us have a king. Everybody else has got a king. Why can't we have a king? I want a king because they've all got a king. God says, fine, you get your king. In this story, we see some basic realities of life. On the one hand, God demands to be our king. I wish I could soften that. I wish I could make that more palatable and say that God would like to be our king, God asked to be our king, but it's king. It's king. It's not gonna be soft. You deal with it whether you like it or not. God demands to be our king, but (laughs) we don't want him to be our king. God demands to be our king, but we don't want him to be our king. We'd like for something else to be our king. We'd like to look to something else to be our king. This is the tension in this story. This is the tension in my life. I suspect it's the tension in yours, too. So if we're gonna understand this, we gotta spend just a, a moment or two going talking about this idea of king, of what a king is, because when it comes to the concept of king, in our culture, we don't really have a frame of reference for this. Especially as Americans, we are specifically designed, defined by not having a king. And so culturally, it's not just natural for us to look at anything else as king. None of us are going go to go to another person, our wife, a teacher, a coach, any, a boss. None of us are going to go to look at that person and say, I will do whatever you tell me all the time, no questions asked. None of us are going to do that. We're not wired that way. We're also not blatantly going to put something something else on the throne of our lives we're subtle about it none of us are going to bow down and worship our family or our career or our fears or our beers or our whatevers we're masters of subtlety we don't naturally submit to others or other things as kings so we need to talk about what this means in our language So that we can get a concept of that. Here's the question, I think. When it comes to this issue of kingship, of who your king is, is this question. It answers this question. What is the determining factor in our decision making? I think this is the king question. We all make decisions about how we're gonna spend our money, about how we're gonna use our time about where we're going to go on this day or what we're doing that week or who we're going to be friends with or what we'll let into our minds or what we'll do with our bodies. We've got all these decisions to make and the question of kingness is the question of what's the determining factor in our decision making. Because whatever, the dominant, whatever becomes the dominant factor in our decision making, that's the thing that functions as our king. And that dominant factor could be anything. It could be a good thing. It could be work. It could be a career. It could be a family. It could be a particular object. It could be a particular habit, a particular substance. Now, if we back up and look at this big picture, look at it with the right amount of faith, the right amount of reason, it just makes sense for God to be the determining factor in all of of the decisions that we make it makes sense for for, for us to make him our king. But we don't. We give in to, say, our appetites or our insecurities. We play the comparison game. We give in in into the desires of good things like work or family. And we make those good things the ultimate thing, which it was never designed to be. Again, we're subtle about this. We don't do this explicitly. We don't just say to God, hey God, would you get down off the throne because I'm not gonna follow you in this moment. We don't don't do it explicitly. We're subtle. We wiggle something up onto the throne of our lives and we try to just kind of elbow God out of the way. That's a little more our style. Or we say things like, "All right, God, you can be the king over most of my life, but (laughs) seriously, God, I I'm a grown-up, it's 2023, I got this little thing over here that you're not allowed to touch. You can, you can have the rest of it, but this, this is mine. I'm just going to hold on to this over here. I've got this habit, or I've got this relationship over here, and it's mine, and you can't have it, and I'm not going to let you be the determining factor when it comes to that. I'm going to let other things tell me how to live. There are all sorts of ways that we do this, but that's not really the question I'm most interested in. I don't really, I'm not really concerned about the how we do this. I going to spend my time today talking about the why. Why do we do this? Why do we give God the elbow and just nudge him out of the way and let something else end up on the throne of our lives? Why do we inch God off the throne just inch by inch? Why do we reject God as king? Why do we hold portions of our lives back and not allow him to rule over that part, but maybe the rest of it, but not that part? Why do we do this? Here's the first reason I think we do this. We do this because we think we can rule ourselves, because we're Americans, we're independent. We, we, we can do this on our own. This is sort of the, the basic stance of our society. We don't like to be told what to do. We don't want anyone else to be our boss. We wanna be our own boss. And so we find ourselves bucking up against this idea of submitting to anyone, submitting to anything as king god in particular it kind of bucks up against the underbelly of the american dream this mentality that that drives our culture that that i'm gonna do whatever i want whenever i want with whoever i want that's the basic philosophy of life for most people in our culture but according to judges and all this study we've done the last several weeks it doesn't work does it it doesn't go well If you've been paying attention during this series, what we've seen in Judges was that was a time in the the history of God's people when they had no king and everyone did whatever was right in their own eyes. And it didn't go well. And it led to chaos. And it led to destruction. And if there's one thing that should just scream at us from these pages of Scripture and this time in in the history of God's people, it's this. Don't trust yourself so much. We can't trust ourselves so much. That's the kind of the point of the whole thing. Because when we do the results can be disastrous. That humans can't be trusted to run the world, but God can. Here's the second reason I think we do this. We prefer more manageable kings. Now this is easiest to talk about maybe if we talk about put this in the context of addictions. You have this thing that you're addicted to a, a food a substance a habit you're addicted so you start with something and you've got this thing that serves you you have a drink at the end of the day to ease up a little bit and relax you have these defined parameters for this habit you put it in a box it, it, it has a job description in your life the job of this thing is to help me chill out at the end of the day and we prefer to have, sort of these, sort of have these things in our life that we can control because they're, they're little and they're, they're there to help us, they're there to serve us. But what happens over time is that these things, these addictions, start to take over. And you look back over your life over six months or five years, and this thing that was supposed to serve you is huge. And now it's not serving you, it's ruling you. And every part of your life is now subject to this thing that was supposed to help. But now it's the determining factor in your life. That's what I mean by when, when I say we prefer more manageable kings. Things that we think that we can keep in a certain part of our lives, but then they just grow and grow and grow and they take over our lives. But it's not just addictions. Think about work. What's about your career. Have you ever been in the situation where you get the, the job that you wanted? And this, is, this is your career path, and you're on the way for you, and it's gonna be great, and you're gonna enjoy it, and you're gonna love to go to work, and you're gonna be able to spend time with your family. You're gonna have more recesses, resources to, to play and, and have that quality time with your kids, and it's gonna be good for the family, and everything's gonna be wonderful. And then 10, ten years later, 10 years down the road, you realize, I don't like my life. I don't like what I've become because all I do is work. That's all I'm spending my time is. And this thing that was supposed to serve you has now become the master. Did you see that in the story? Did you notice that the people want a human king? Why? Because they have a job description for him. We want a king because we want somebody to be our judge, someone to help us resolve our conflicts, someone to lead us into battle. We've already got the job description written up for him, and God's like, no, 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 you don't understand. You think you can manage this, but this little thing that you have fit into this little tiny box is going to bust out and go all over everything and take over everything. And this is exactly what happens. This thing that you think is going to serve you, you're going to end up becoming a slave to that. We prefer more manageable kings. And when it doesn't work, when it doesn't work, here's what we do. And this is bizarre. When it doesn't work, when we realize that this little thing is trying to take over, we try to throw that thing off. But instead of turning to God, we turn to another manageable king. We know we can't manage God. He's too big. We know we can't control God. He's, he's too much. So we turn to another thing that we think we can put and keep in the little box, in the little compartment in our lives, and we complete this same cycle over and over and over again until we spiral down, continuing to prefer more manageable kings until they destroy us. Here's the third reason that we do this, third way we do this, or the third why we do this. We do this because we... We, we like to imitate the people around us. We, w- we want to imitate the people around us. Now, this is very obvious in the text. I try to emphasize this every time we read it because it shows up a bunch of times. Twice the people say, here's why we want a king. We want a king because when we look around at all the nations, all of our neighbors, they all have kings. We don't have a king. We're jealous that they have a king. We don't have a king. We want a king. And as much as we like to talk about the value and the importance uh, of, of individuality, of independence. None of us want to be the one who gets mocked at the party for being too religious or in the workplace. And we feel a little anxious when we realize that we're the only one in the boardroom or the only one in the classroom or in the mother's club or at the bar. We get a little anxious when we look around and we realize we're the only one in the room that goes to church. The only one that loves Jesus. We hope the subject doesn't come up. We don't have to deal with it. And as much as we confidently and sometimes boastfully claim independence, I don't care what somebody thinks of me. The fact is, (laughs) we do. Because somewhere deep inside, we're all still middle school kids looking for the lunch table to sit at. And so we wind up trying to look like the people around us. That's one of the reasons why. Here's the fourth reason why we do this. I think this is the big one. We forget how great God really is. We forget because... Like our addictions or our work, we've tried to put God into a little box. We've tried to contain him. And so we forget how great and how big he really is. The point is not that all these little things, all these little kings are bad. The point is not that food is a bad thing or that work is a bad thing or that family is a bad thing. Not, not, not at all. The point is God is a better thing. The point is not that you're so weak and needy and worthless that you have to surrender to somebody else. No, no, no. The point is not that you're lame. The point is that God is awesome, and he's huge, and he's great. The point is that only he, only he is up to the task of running the world. Only he is the worthy king of your life and my life. I worry sometimes that our thoughts about God are unworthy of him. We've got to talk about this because I I think this is a big problem even in churches today, that our thoughts about God are too small, that they're unworthy of who he really is. Can I remind you just real quickly before we we leave today? Can I just remind you of some of the things that we believe about this one that we call God? May I remind you, I'm going to use some, some churchy words here, I'm going to explain them. But let me remind you that we believe that God is omnipotent. Omnipotent. That means that God is stronger than any strength. That God is incapable of being overcome by anyone or anything. He is omnipotent. May I remind you that we believe that God is omniscient. Omniscient, which means he doesn't learn things. He just knows all things. Past, present, future in one great and eternal act of divine loving attentiveness. He knows all he's omniscient. Can I remind you that our God is omnipresent? Which means he transcends the boundaries of time and space. My mind can't get wrapped around this. Yours can't either, because we're not omnipresent. So what's true to say that God is everywhere, and it's true to say that God is right here in the room with us, and know if those things are true at the exact same time because he is omnipresent. He's everywhere and he's right here. And can I remind you that our God is omnibenevolent? Which means that he is only and always loving. It means that God is love. It means that for him, love is not a habit. Love is not a choice means for God that love is his very nature. It's who he is. And if you ever get the chance to meet someone who is all-powerful and all-knowing and everywhere present and entirely loving, you probably should submit yourself to that as king. We're talking about a God who made everything that you see He made the oceans and the sunsets and all the things that make up all the things that we hold dear and all the people that we love in our lives. He made them. He made everything. We're talking about a God who delivered his people out of slavery, out from underneath the thumb of the largest, most powerful empire in the world and he freed them and he patiently walked with them through this process of revealing himself to them. We're talking about a God who sent his only son to die so that you, and I could have our sins forgiven, our slate wiped clean, our wrongdoings atoned for, and he reached out to us, and he grabbed onto us, and he pulled us close to him. This God, this is a God who is worthy of our submission. This God is worthy to be our king. So what do we do next? I think it's pretty simple would just say to God God I submit to you as king God I submit to you as king over every part of my life now you don't have to do this out loud you can do that later you can do it out loud if you want to I don't care we can talk about it you can talk back to me that's fine if that's true of you would you just say that right now in your your mind don't do it out loud just in your mind would you say that right now God I submit to you as king And if that's the first time you've done that, then awesome. And if you've done this before or you do this on a regular basis, but but you have a part of your life that doesn't really align with that submission, then get rid of it. And God, I submit to you as king. If you've got a corner of your life that you're not allowing God to rule over, then open that up to him. God, I submit to you as king. And if you've never said it before, I don't know why you'd wait any longer. God, I submit to you as king. Let me pray for you. Communion team, go ahead and take your places, please. Father, we sit in the stillness of this room before you right now. And in our hearts and in our minds, we say to you, you are king. We submit to you as the king of our lives as the most important role in our lives, as the determining factor in our decisions, as the leader and forgiver of our lives, we submit to you as king. And we allow you to be and to stay on the throne of our lives, to rule us, to lead us with your wisdom, and to rule and to lead with your love. So Father, we submit to you. As we turn now to this time of communion, as we turn our focus upon the cross of Jesus, upon his sacrifice for us, we realize that in this finished work, and this power seen by nailing sin and death to the cross, and by rising again, we realize that you deserve to be the king of our lives. So we submit to you as king. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.